invite you to turn to Daniel 7, where we'll be today. Some of you, if you've been in our series together, you know what we're about to hit up today. If you're just joining us, uh, uh, welcome to Alpine Bible Church. I want you to know that you have picked Eschatology Sunday uh, to be here with us, where I am going to tell you the exact time Jesus is going to return to this earth, and it will be whenever he pleases. <laughs> that, is the, that is the answer of my prediction there. Um, eschatology is, uh, um, it's interesting to study and I find a difficult subject to dialogue over because people get heated over this, uh, maybe faster than, than any subject I can think of in Christianity. People all, I mean, we, um, <laughs> I feel like when you're in Christian circles for, for long enough, someone just wants to suggest, let's do a Bible study on revelations. And, and then you just want to say it's revelation, please not revelations. And then you get into all these crazy things on eschat- eschatological beliefs that, people hold to. And, um, I like it when people pull out the Trump card, they'll say things like, well, when they don't, you don't agree with one another, they say things like, well, I take the Bible literal, you know, and implying that, that you don't do that. And therefore you must be mistaken. And, um, uh, when it comes to the nature of studying eschatology, uh, revelation, apocalyptic literature, which is what we're looking at today, uh, by very nature of that type of literary genre, it demands uh, that you don't start off taking it literal because it's symbolic. <laughs> and symbolic means it, it applies to something in the world, but symbolism is not intended to be uh, taking uh, literal from the get-go. Like, I'd I doubt, I think I've said this to you before, I seriously doubt anyone here expects to see the great horror of Babylon floating on the back of a dragon across the sky. That's just, when you say you take those things literal, it's, it's, it's really a matter of um, to, to what degree and first trying to understand the symbolism. So I want you to know, we, we look at this eschatology this morning, starting with Daniel chapter 7. Um, I feel like, I'll, I'll give you some of the things of what I think particularly what it means and why in the world it should even matter to us. Um, but, but I feel like for the church, one of the best things that we could do in studying this is, is really, um, approach it with good interpretation long before we ever look at application. And that means when, when the Bible is first written, it was intended to mean something to the audience there and then before it was intended to mean something to us today. It was first written to them, but truth is timeless and it still makes application to our lives. And so when we talk about the idea of, of eschatology, um, I think it's far more important for us to begin with the idea of what it means there and then before we dive into all that. So let me, let me give you a little bit of a, a backdrop and leading into where we are in Daniel. And then I, I want to dive into this text this morning in Daniel chapter 7. In the story of Daniel, you'll remember the first six chapters of this book. This book is 12 chapters long. The first six chapters are a narrative. And the last six chapters are prophetic. They're apocalyptic by nature. And so because of that, Daniel is categorized as a, as a prophetic book. And, and so the book breaks down nicely. We see Daniel taken as a young man into captivity. He spends 70 years in captivity, grows into a much older man in, in captivity. And the Lord still uh, works in his life, communicating with him. In those six chapters, we see from Daniel as a young teenager, probably middle school age, all the way into his 80s, God's still uh, ministering to the people. People through Daniel. And, and you see that just unfold in six short chapters. And then you come to this chapter seven and, and Daniel's still seeking God's face because his people are in captivity. And, and God sort of, as he's shown through Daniel in six chapters, how he was right there and he was working out his plan. He, he sort of looks prophetically into the future to let God's people know um, that he is going to continue to work, that God's not finished with them yet. And, and he desires to work within them. Now, when you consider the 
the context of this passage, I think Psalm 137, if you want to, you want a Psalm that kind of grabs the attitude and the approach of the people in Babylon, uh, Babylonian captivity, Psalm 137, I'm not going to read the whole Psalm. Just, just consider this opening verse. This I think shares uh, Daniel's heart and where he is in all of this, but it says by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. This is the place of God's people, uh, Jerusalem, which is a representation uh, of, of the greater work of what God was doing with his people in Israel. And so this attitude, as they think about being in Babylon, their heart is still broken for what they know, where, had, where God has led them and what had, God has called them to. And so in the context of this story, Daniel's soul is, is looking for a future. And really, I think his soul is looking for Shalom. A place to rest, a place of peace. Now, I, I think the idea of peace is important just to talk about for a moment. But when we think about peace in our lives, we really mean make the kids be quiet, everyone go away, let me sit in the dark room and just rock back and forth, right? That's, I mean, I need, I need peace, right? But, but when, when God talks about peace, his, his idea of peace is much bigger than your temporal, unsatisfactory idea that will only work for a couple minutes, right? So, so God's idea of peace is this total restoration of what was lost. If you read in like Romans chapter 8, it tells us all of creation is groaning. And so we're looking for this peace that doesn't just restore our soul in the moment, but is this everlasting peace, not just for ourselves, but for all of creation. Which is what brings us to apocalyptic literature, because it's, it, it's this idea of, of looking into the future. And when we get this word apocalyptic from uh, apocalypsis, which is the word for, uh, in English, revelation. And so apocalyptic literature, I've already told you, it employs symbolic and figurative language to describe a future uh, divine intervention. And this is where people can sometimes just go bananas on all kinds of interpretations. And, and I really, I want to lay out a few of those and seeing some pictures as we go through these chapters together and how people come to different uh, answers through what is represented in this apocalyptic literature and why it's not always easy. But, it, but if you have ever read apocalyptic literature and you're like, what in the what is going on here? <laughs> I, do not have, I do not have the master's degree to figure this out. I want you to know that, that in approaching this, you're in good company, okay? Because when you read these chapters of Daniel, in the last six chapters of this book, Daniel continues to say that. And if anyone should know exactly what all this means, it should be Daniel. But you see in these chapters that Daniel's even asking questions like, what are you talking about? And then after God gives an explanation, he's like, okay, but what are you talking about? So, so like, for example, in Daniel seven twenty eight, this is what he says in the chapter we're looking at today. At this point, the revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming, uh, greatly alarming me and my face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. So he's like, ah, I, don't, I can't figure this out. This is, this is difficult. In Daniel 8, 27, listen to this. Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. But I was astounded at the vision, and there was no one to explain it. And that's after God explained it to him. And, and, and so when you look at the, these types of, this form of literature, it, it is um, somewhat difficult to wrestle with. And, 
and a lot of the symbolic language that's used takes itself out of the Old Testament. So if you're looking at, for instance, Revelation, a lot of the symbolic language used there takes itself out of the Old Testament. So to really understand Revelation, you need to have a good grasp of, of the Old Testament, especially the prophetic portions of the Old Testament. And not all of Revelation comes from the Old Testament. Some of it is directly out of the history at the time. For example, um, you read Revelation and starting in uh, chapter 4 and chapter 5, it talks about the 24 elders before the throne room of God. And what in the world does 24 elders mean? And, and people have speculated, and, they, and this is some of the conclusions they've come up with is, uh, well, there's 12 tribes of Israel. There's 12 apostles. Therefore, 24 must be the combination of both of those. I, I don't think that that's accurate. I think what's happening if you read that story is, these 24 elders are before the throne of God, casting their crowns before him, saying, we're not Lord, you're Lord, you're worthy, bowing before him in his throne room. And I think that throne room represents the uh, heavenly temple of God, God's dwelling place. This is his throne from where he rules. The earthly temple was a picture of the heavenly temple. And the 24 elders, if you study it historically, um, it took 24 priests to carry on the function within the temple during the time uh, that John was writing Revelation. And so I think what John is doing is representing God's people in that picture as holistically in the 24 uh, elders that are before the throne of the Lamb, which is symbolic of the temple in which God dwells in. And, and so you need to not only have an understanding of some, a little bit of history and, um, and uh, good commentary, um, but you also got to practice some patience in working through it. And so a good, a good commentary will help through some of that, some of that stuff. But Revelation, um, apocalyptic literature, the book of Daniel... It's not always easy to work through, but good news, we're going to do it today. <laughs> and now that I've said that it's not, it's not necessarily easy and throwing all these adverse things, and even Daniel is like, what in the world's going on? Maybe you ask the question, well, why, why should I study this passage of scripture if it's so hard, especially for people like Daniel? I mean, what am I going to do? What am I going to get out of this? And why is this important to me? Well, I, I think especially when it comes to Daniel chapter 7, we should be answering this question because Daniel chapter 7 is quoted uh, almost uh, five dozen times in the New Testament. And most of the time it's quoted, it's quoted by Jesus. And so Jesus, alluding to his ministry and what he's carrying out, looks to Daniel chapter 7 as a primary basis for our understanding of exactly who he is. And so when you can wrestle with this passage and, and walk away with some thoughts as to what's being talked about in this section, I, I think this chapter especially will create some color in the way that you read Scripture that will just bring it to life in, in your study and, and understanding. Uh, in addition to that, when you, for example, turn to the book of Revelation, the book begins and ends with these thoughts. It says in Revelation chapter 1, Blessed are you if you hear its words. And at the end of the book, chapter 22, verse 7, blessed are you if you heed its words. And so there's, there's something about the understanding of Scripture in which there are uh, blessings, especially as it relates to the apocalyptic literature. Now, when it comes to the idea of revelation, um, I want to tell you, out of all the things that you can study theologically, uh, apocalyptic literature and predicting the future is not necessarily the best hill to die on. I think there's some big picture ideas that are important, but there are some particulars where you just need to provide some flexibility. And, and what I mean is, as a church, theologically, God's people, there are things historically that we stand for and there are hills to die on, right? Um, 
the deity of Christ, uh, inerrancy of scripture, uh, the, the trinity, uh, who is God, what is salvation. I mean, those are pillars of Christianity. And when it comes to, will you give your faith, will you give your life for that, for your faith in that? I, at the end of the day, I want to say yes. And I, and I hope when the time comes that I prove faithful. Right? Or if the time comes, I'm faithful to it. When it comes to apocalyptic literature, I think it's worth just saying, um, when you read the New Testament, people didn't get the first coming of Jesus right. And I, I don't want to be so arrogant as to say this morning, I've got everything figured out as it relates to a second coming. I, I know there are Bible teachers that will stand up and tell you everything specific about um, the New Testament and how it relates to everything going on today and who specifically that Antichrist is and how everything that's designed is, relates to specific nations and, and Jesus is coming tomorrow and they give you exact dates. And I'm going to tell you that is not me. I, I, would, I would way rather walk an interpretation in, in the time in which it was written and give an idea of what I think it is and, and provide some flexibility just to keep learning and growing in this area um, because I, I, I don't think I necessarily have all of it figured out. And I think that's a much better approach to this topic um, than just dogmatically slamming down the pedal and moving forward without listening to scholars that have spent several um, hours and, and really a lifetime in trying to figure out what these things mean. And even being honest with them, um, they're not always as dogmatic as they could be knowing how much time they spent in, in studying these things. Now, all that being said, I'm going to dive into Daniel. Daniel chapter 7. Now, remember when I told you when this book breaks down um, that, that Daniel chapter 7 really aligns itself with Daniel chapter 2. And, and chapter 2 and 7 become an ex, uh, a gateway to explain the rest of this book. So if you were here for Daniel chapter 2, remember we talked about the golden image and a rock coming and crushing it. And that, that image, or not a golden image, but the image, the statue, had four different layers to it representing four kingdoms. And so when you get to Daniel chapter 7, he plays on that thought again of that representation taking place here. And so he's saying to Daniel, this is how I see things transpiring and this is how I'm going to work. Uh, my plan out in history, it, it's in, in, uh, it, it works with opposing nations to God. It works while people may be contrary to the Lord. God is still able to move his plan forward. And he demonstrates that by declaring what the future will hold. And so Daniel chapter 7, I want to pick up in verse 2. It says this. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. So the four winds represent four corners. You think like a compass. The ends of the earth is represented here. And so these winds of heaven, and they're stirring up the great sea. And to, to uh, people of this time, the sea was considered a place of chaos. When God created in Genesis chapter 1, it tells us uh, that he creates the earth and there's the sea and it is chaotic. And so the, the idea of water when it's mentioned in the Old Testament especially is this, this thought of chaotic description of uncertainty. And then from that sea comes four great beasts. Uh, we're coming up from the sea different from one another. It tells us a little later in Daniel that these, these four beasts represent uh, four kingdoms. It happens in uh, verse 17. Interesting thing about these beasts as we start to read in this, in this section of scripture is that these beasts are uh, hybrid beasts. 
They have like two separate types of animals that are mixed together in them. And when you study uh, Old Testament law, Leviticus chapter 11, Deuteronomy chapter 14, uh, by Israel's law, they would have been considered unclean animals. And so because of the nature of these beasts and representing something that's contrary to God's uh, desire, God's plan uh, of his holiness, these beasts are described as unclean characters. And so when it begins to describe this beast, it it does it similar to Daniel chapter 2 in the statue uh, in four different types. And so it says in verse 4, the first was like a lion and had the wings of an eagle. I kept looking until its wings were plucked and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. A human mind also was given to it. Daniel uh, chapter 7 verse 4 is a representation of the Babylonian kingdom. It was the first kingdom listed on the statue of Daniel chapter 2. Uh, the, the Babylonian kingdom, they, you can go back archaeologically and see they had winged lions uh, throughout the kingdom and, and the representation of their animal. But when they describe these animals here, it's, it's characteristic to the type of empire in which they had. Uh, the lion was the king of the land and the eagle was the king of the air. And Babylon was the world power that controlled it all. And so you see this symbolically representative. And then when it starts talking about a man, people often question what this could be as it relates to the kingdom. But if you remember in Daniel chapter 4, most people assume that this is where it comes from. That King Nebuchadnezzar lost his mind, went out to the fields like a wild animal. Uh, He ate from the fields and then God gave him his mind back. He stood back up uh, upright as a man. So people think that that's probably what it alludes to. And then when it gets to verse 5, and behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. And it was raised up on one side with three ribs uh, in its mouth between its teeth. And thus they said to it, arise, devour much meat. When it talks about the bear, if you think about the empires that followed leading up to Jesus, the next one was the Persian empire, as I've said it to you. But the truth is, it's not just completely the Persian empire. That was the dominant empire. The Medes and the Persians combined together to create this empire. And so when you look at this bear, it's saying this bear is standing up, but it's sort of kiltered where one side is a little bigger than the other. And when the Medes and Persians came together, the Persian empire demonstrated to be more powerful. And when they went conquering this world, there were three major battles that they they completed in order to conquer this Babylonian empire. And they said that's what's represented by the ribs within its mouth. And then after this, I kept looking. And behold, another one, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After the Persian empire came the Greeks. Alexander the Great conquered the known world. I think by the age of 32, it said that, uh, historically, it said that he had conquered the known world. And this, is, this has not been dim, uh, proven, but they say when Alexander conquered the known world, that his response was to immediately start crying because there was nowhere left to conquer. And so like a leopard, the speed of a leopard, uh, Alexander the Great went throughout the known world, conquering the world, and he died at a young age. History, I think, says he went into some kind of drunken stupor and died. And then he had four generals who were under him. And his kingdom was divided into four parts, which is what's represented here by the four heads. After the the Greek empire, when you look at these empires, it's sort of like uh, the Persians come in and swallow up the Babylonian empire and and, and the Greeks come in and kind of swallow up the the Persian empire. And then you get this last empire that's the the scariest of all in in its description. It says, after this, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast. Dreadful and terrifying. I said scary. So dreadful and terrifying is more biblically correct. And extremely strong. 
and it had large iron teeth. It devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. I think it's describing some of you in the morning before your morning coffee. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had ten horns. While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a human and a mouth uttering great boasts. Now, what does that mean? I don't I don't know, I quit. <laughs> no, I just kidding. I kid. What, what is this talking about? Well, this is in reference to the Roman Empire, of which it has ten horns. And from that comes a little horn. And, and some people will talk about this more in the future. I'm not going to get to this today. Uh, but this little horn is representation of the Antichrist. Okay? Uh, there's, the rest of Daniel keeps going back to these thoughts. And that's why I'm going to hold off on uh, the specifics of that in, in, as we look into the future. But it talks about these ten horns. And uh, people have speculated as to what in the world uh, these ten horns represent. And this little horn, I just told you, is the Antichrist. Uh, but I'll, I'll give you the gamut of what ten horns could possibly be. Um, some, some have suggested in Rome, if you study the Caesars that rule Rome, um, that there were ten real Caesars that ruled Rome. There's actually twelve, but two of them only ruled for just a couple of months. So there's ten legitimate Caesars that ruled Rome. And so when it talks about these ten horns coming out of Rome, that's what it's symbolizing. Others have said, well, the number ten is just a number of completeness. So it's showing that from Rome, there will be this type of ruling that will take place until a time of completeness comes. So it's not really necessarily saying ten kings as much as just saying a completeness of, of rulers. Others have suggested that if you study the Roman Empire, uh, once the Roman Empire uh, starts to come to an end, that, that these, uh, these areas of Rome are divided into ten provinces, states, or regions. And, and from that, if you study historically about 453, I think it is, or four, might be 483 AD, you see these, these ten regions, and one guy comes and actually conquers three of them. And so they're saying that that, that might be symbolic of what's taking place here. But in all of that, what it's recognizing for us, if I just think of major picture for a moment, God is saying to Daniel, I'm not finished with you yet. I want you to take a look into the future with me, and this is how I'm going to work things out. And so he paints this picture taking place of these kingdoms that will rise and these rulers that will lead and up to this fourth kingdom that will look most dreadful in all. And even when you study the Rome as it's broken out historically, you see God's people under massive persecution during certain periods of the Roman Empire, starting with Nero, who was responsible for crucifying Peter and Paul, or crucifying Peter and beheading Paul. And and, and lighting Christians on fire, and uh, Domitian, Diocletian. Diocletian's on record as saying he wants to destroy every book of the Bible and wipe Christianity off the map. And, and so you see this dreadful empire that, that is, is born. In fact, when, when John writes uh, the book of Revelations, believed he's writing in exile because he is a follower of Christ, and he writes it apocalyptically so that people can't decipher the message, but only God's followers who understand what the symbolism represents. And so you see the idea of this beast carrying itself out. And so if you look at this, your mind might get a little helpless as to the state of how things are going. And so from here, this is where God says in Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. 
His vesture was like white snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. And his throne was ablaze with flames. Its wheels were a burning fire. So he's giving us this description of God. And he refers to him as the Ancient of Days. And when it talks about him being white as snow and his hair like wool, it's, it's showing holiness and wisdom. The idea of white is one of purity, representing holiness. And the idea of wool for his hair is actually representing of, of wisdom. Uh, in fact, when you read Ecclesiastes chapter 12, I think it's verse 9 to verse 13, it uses the word wise twice at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. And that word wise actually means gray hair. That's literally how it's translated. And, and into English, we make it wise because we understand what it's saying. Uh, but the picture of God here in this passage is, is one who is holy, one who is pure, uh, one who is wise. And it talks about around his throne are flames, and, which again represents holiness, but also carries this idea of judgment. And, and wheels were burning. And, and the idea of a wheel is the circumference of his judgment. And so because it's circular, it's saying it has no end. That God, in his authority, reaches to the ends in his judgment and power, according to this fire at work. And, and then in verse 10, a river of fire was flowing and coming out from before him. And this river is a representation of life. And, and so this judgment uh, uh, is coming out from him. And thousands upon thousands were attending him. And myriads upon myriads were attending before him. The court sat and the books were opened. Now, it says something interesting there. I'm not, I don't have it on the screen, but verse 11, it then goes back to this little horn. In verse 11 and 12, it talks about this little horn again. And this little horn is speaking blasphemy. And Daniel's looking at him like, you have better shut your mouth, boy. You know, what are are you doing saying against God? And so this little horn is just declaring um, blasphemy against God. And Daniel's wondering how this is all going to play out. I I think the play out, it it really starts for the little horn when Daniel gets his explanation in verse 23. But he's watching this little horn as it relates to this, wondering why in the world is this guy talking when God has demonstrated his authority here. And then it goes a little further. And starts to give this other explanation or this addition to the explanation that says, I keep looking in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man. And you need to hold on to that word, right? If you were here for the Mark series, uh, you might be familiar with it. But he sees one like the son of man who was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him, talking about the son of man, was given dominion, glory, in a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And so when it talks about the Son of Man, it gives this idea of one, him being a man, but also having characteristics of God. Everlasting dominion. Um, people bowing before his authority. And in fact, Isaiah 42, verse 8, it tells us uh, that God will not give his glory to any other but himself. And so you see this idea of, of deity being proclaimed in verse 14, but you also see this idea, uh, idea of humanity being discussed in, in, in verse 13 as it relates to uh, the Son of Man. Ancient of days, Son of Man. When Jesus arrives in the Gospels, Angel Gabriel announced his birth in Luke one thirty two. Listen to this. He will be great 
He'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Daniel 7. Jesus proclaimed this. Mark chapter 1 verse 15 saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Mark chapter 2, Jesus said this. The son of man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Jesus went on to say in the same chapter, the son of man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. In Matthew 28, 18, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus made that declaration. Just before Jesus was crucified, before the high priest, the high priest asked Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus responded, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And then it says, tearing his clothes, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. When Jesus describes himself to the high priest, he, he uses Daniel chapter 7. And then he, and he talks about coming in the clouds, which is uh, the, the authorities of heaven with him. That's the demonstration of all heaven's authorities coming with the king. So Jesus is calling himself Lord of Lords. And when you open up in the book of Revelation chapter 1, this is how it starts in verse, in verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come. So Jesus, in chapter 7 and 8, calls himself the Lord God, the beginning and the end, demonstrating himself to be the same that's described in Daniel chapter 7. Now, you look at this story and you see Jesus, referred to plainly here, you can see as the Son of Man. How do you deal with the Ancient of Days, right? Remember in Daniel chapter 2, I, I, I said to you, uh, there was a, uh, there, or the prophecy that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar received, I should say. It wasn't two. Uh, there's writing on the wall. And I use that time to theologically show you how God the Father does not have a physical body, right? Um, in fact, there's no scripture to support that God the Father has a physical body. When you look in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 16, it tells us no one has seen God. No one will ever see God. In John chapter 4, verse 24, God is spirit. In Luke 24, 39, I think it is, a spirit has no flesh and bones. That Jesus, a part of the triune God, became flesh. That happens in, in John chapter 1, verse 14. It starts to tell us that Jesus became flesh and he exposiates or explains the Father. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, John chapter 14, Jesus said in the beginning of that chapter, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Meaning, if you want to know what God the Father is like characteristically, just look at Jesus. Jesus demonstrates him. So the Godhead does not have physical form or physical body and until Jesus becomes flesh. Now, anthropomorphically, God is described as having characteristics uh, in physical form. 
Um, and it's not just at some, some points you might see, like we saw in Daniel, God has a hand, it said, as he wrote on a wall. But other times, it, God's described as a bear. Uh, even in Revelation, it's described that way. God's, uh, God's described as an eagle. Uh, God's described as a mountain. And so anthropomorphically, it's trying to give us characteristics of which we could think about God, uh, uh, relate to God, or understand God. And so when it talks about the ancient of days, I think the same thing's happening here. But here's one of the interesting things. When you get to Revelation chapter 1, which I just read from, and then you look in verse 13. Let me see if I put it, I put it up here. Good. Look at this. If you remember the description of the ancient of days, Daniel chapter 7, and you read Revelation 1, verse 13, in the middle of the lampstand, I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe, reaching the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool like snow and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like uh, burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in the furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters. So remember the, the rushing of the river that came from the ancient of days. And so what you see here is the same characteristics described at the ancient of days in Revelation chapter 7 are the same characteristics given to Jesus in, 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 uh, excuse me, in Daniel chapter 7. It's given to Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 verse 13. Now, you got all that theologically laid out for you. Let me, let me give you some explanation. Um, is if your head's spinning right now, I want to I slow down. And, and I want to give us some so what's as it relates to this. You see these kingdoms, and then you see Jesus coming. And if you remember the, the first story that we read about the statues, it tells us that these four kingdoms represented the statue, and at the bottom there were ten toes made of clay, which represents the same as the ten horns in Revelation, or Daniel chapter 7. And this stone comes, and it crushes the feet of the statue, and the statue is toppled into dust. Right? And you read in Daniel chapter 7, and you see four kingdoms, and then all of a sudden the Ancient of Days. Ancient of Days gives this explanation, and the little horn runs its mouth, and, and, and then the Son of Man comes in. But the question really then becomes, all these kingdoms have ruled, and then after the Roman kingdom, or during the Roman kingdom, Jesus shows up. Where is that kingdom? Where is that ruling? Where is that peace? Like Jesus came... Why hasn't all of it been taken care of? Why do we still sit with kingdoms that blaspheme God? How does that look? In 2 Peter chapter 3, they ask the same question. Verse 4. They ask that same question. Where is that God? You guys say that Jesus was coming to establish his kingdom, but where is it? And in verse 8, they start to give an answer to that. Now, I want you to just think about this for a minute. I don't have time to go through this today because I'm running short. But in verse 23 of Daniel 7, you can go read this a little bit later. It starts talking about this beast running his mouth. And, and, and I think that it's talking about this beast running his, his mouth um, after Jesus has already come to establish this or to, to introduce his kingdom, uh, but not having fully established the kingdom. 
And, and what you read is, as you go on from chapter 7 and starting in verse 25, you see this declaration being made. And then all of, all of a sudden, in verse 27, it says this, Then the sovereignty, the dominion of the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people uh, of the saints of the, of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom and all the dominions uh, will serve and obey him. So I think what it's saying is... Um, there will be judgment brought against this, this little horn. And then, and then after all that's taking place, God will ultimately uh, give his kingdom over to his people. What I, I think Second uh, Peter chapter 3 is getting to, where is the promise of his coming? That's what they ask. Where is this kingdom of which he promised to come? And, and in verse 8, it starts off this way. It says, well, one day is a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand, days, or a thousand years is one day to God. Meaning God doesn't function on your timeline. But then it goes on and says this, that to God, time's not really what's important, but the Lord is not slow about his promise, as you might count it slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but all come to repentance. And so when Jesus' ministry started, this is what I think's happened. In Daniel chapter 7, uh, the Son of Man came and he declared his kingdom. And I, and I introduced those passages to you, starting Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So Jesus declared it. But then he also said, if you're going to pray, pray in this way. Our Father which art in heaven. And he goes on to say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So he tells us to pray for the coming of that kingdom. In fact, at the end of Revelation, the, the thought is, come, Lord Jesus. So what is this? What is this? If, if God's kingdom has come, where is this kingdom? I think Jesus came, and he's he spiritually set us free. And I think he's ruling and reigning in heaven right now. In fact, Acts, Acts chapter 7, when Stephen, the first martyr, gives us a glimpse into heaven, you see Jesus standing before the throne there. A demonstration that he's, he's, he's there ruling and reigning, but the fullness of his kingdom has not come. Why? Because with the fullness of his kingdom comes his wrath against everything that opposes it. And so what Peter is saying is that God has delayed the fullness of its arrival. Why? Not willing any to perish for all come to repentance. So what does this become for us? An act of his grace. An opportunity for you and for me to declare this gospel of this king that sets us free in this world that we may all come to know him. What this statement is saying is don't delay. You were created for this king. You were created to belong. And Jesus is extending his hand of grace for your opportunity to know him and to rest in his grace and find security in his throne. And Daniel, as they, we looked in Psalm chapter 137, they weep on the rivers of Babylon thinking about Zion. And, and Daniel, looking to the future, he, he wants to know that peace and what they're saying in this story is that peace is 
that grace, that opportunity, it still be ex- extended to you and to I, that that king has, has come to deliver his kingdom and ultimately he will, he will return with his authority. And, and some of you may have, have come to hear this special word that reminds us of when exactly that's going to take place and we might reference it in our lives as this, this little word called Armageddon. You ever heard of that? Armageddon, right? And when you think of Armageddon, you think destruction and pandemonium, chaos and crazy. But, but I really want us to understand what is exactly being communicated by this word Armageddon. And it comes in, in, in Dan, or excuse me, Revelation chapter 16. If you look in, in verse 14 for just a moment, there's this, this teaching of this word called Armageddon. And I want to remind you, when I taught about uh, the statue in chapter 2, we went to um, Revelation chapter 17. And I walked you through 17 to 21 very quickly, but I walked you through chapter 17 and 21. And I told you that chapter 17 and 21 is a tale of two cities. Chapter 17 is Babylon. Right? I don't think it's necessary that Babylon has to be resurrected. People teach that, which is not necessary. But Babylon becomes a representation of world-dominant empire. So chapter 17, you see this, what's called the, the whore of Babylon or the harlot of Babylon. She's decked out in gold. She's attracting the world to her. And then verse 18, you see this funeral dirge of her death. And then you see God coming in 19 as a warrior with a robe that is dipped in blood and a tattoo down the side of his leg that says, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the sword comes out of his mouth. It is, it is crazy Jesus, right? And, and, and then in 19, uh, 20, 21, then you see this new Jerusalem coming down for God's people. And all of that unfolding. And I, I think the culmination of all those events described really uh, happens here with this, this thought of Armageddon. What is Armageddon? Well, Armageddon literally is Armageddon. All it really means is not when, when I say, what's Armageddon, guys? And you're like, destruction and death, the chaos, it's WWE, whatever, whatever. Anyway, so, but Armageddon literally means Armageddon, which is the hill in front of a valley. Armageddon <laughs> is a particular valley. And Har is hill. And so when it talks about Armageddon, it's talking about a battle from this mountain overlooking this valley. But when you study Megiddo, Megiddo has a very specific historical significance to people. Megiddo was a part of an ancient trade route. And if you could control that area of the world, it was thought that you could control the world. And in fact, some scholars have said more battles have been fought in this valley than anywhere else in history. More blood has been shed for this region of the world than anywhere else. And so when you look at this, this area on a map, you would see that Megiddo, it actually, Megiddo actually brings in Europe, Asia into Africa. The, the way that the valley sets itself, it kind of finds itself in, in between this, this, these mountain ranges or these hills that are very difficult to pass through. And so you need to go through this, this valley area in order to get to anywhere from Africa into Europe or into Asia. And, and so when you think about Megiddo, this, if you wanted to control the world, this was a region in which you wanted to dominate. So whoever had the power of Megiddo, had the power of the world. 
In fact, Solomon, the richest king in Israel's history, it says this about him in 1 Kings chapter 9. You want to know how he got his wealth? Well, God gave him his wealth, but this is the way it worked. King Solomon levied to build the house of the Lord with his own house, uh, the Milo, the wall of Jerusalem, then Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. So Solomon controls that trade route. He controls the city before Megiddo and the city after Megiddo, but he wants to make sure that he contains control within this area. And that commerce and that control of that region of the world allowed him to grow to the power in which he possessed. It was the magnitude of Israel's strength. So when we talk about Megiddo, what this represents is control of the world. And so when it talks about Armageddon, um, maybe in a very specific sense, it could mean all the powers of the world assemble on this one valley and fight. But I, I want to tell you, and they're going to fight against God, but I want to just tell you, like, if you ever find yourself in a place where people are like, hey, we're all jumping on a plane with some guns. We're going to go fight God in a valley called Megiddo. I'm going to tell you, don't participate, right? That's just, it's not going to go out well with you, Okay. But at the very least, what this symbolizes is that there is a power and a battle taking place for control. And I think it very much has to do with the soul of humanity. Megiddo could represent, in a sense, you and I. God's desire as King of kings and Lord of lords versus this prostitute of Babylon offering us the gold of society that will ultimately not satisfy. But one of the most interesting things I think about this valley, when you literally stand on Harmageddon, the hill that overlooks Megiddo, if you were just to turn around and look behind you, you would see another hill. On that hill is a little city. And they call that city Nazareth. As a little boy, Jesus stood on the hill that overlooked Megiddo, thinking, as the Son of Man, he came to serve to give his life. And one day he would return with his authority to declare it over the worlds. You think about the kingdom of God, and you ask the question, where, where is it? I think Jesus is ruling and reigning right now. But I think physically he will return. But his delay, his delay is what Peter said. Not willing any to perish, but all come to repentance. God's delay is for you and I to see the significance of who he really is. To read a passage like Daniel and think, you know, as Daniel read these passages, it says he was sick, he was pale, he thought about how drastic these things were. But at the same time, how incredibly hopeful it becomes for God's people. While the world rages against God, God continues to give his grace. So for us this morning, this becomes a place for, for us to look at this seriously. To realize the significance of every day of our lives for a king who will ultimately come and declare this over the world. And to think that the battle of Armageddon, honestly, it's happening every day over the souls of people. Maybe even yours.
if but by an act of faith you trust in Christ, knowing that the Son of Man came to this world to give his life, that you may call him my Lord and my God, your Savior and your King. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.